Hey there, this is Natalie Argarius, and you are listening to the Urbanist Podcast, a podcast in which we discuss news, information, and ideas related to improving cities and quality of life. Today, I'm joined by reporter Ray Dubicki and executive director Doug Trum. I'm Ray Dubicki. In this week's episode, we're going to talk concrete, striking workers, and the impacts of the ongoing concrete strike. Stick around. All right. So, Doug, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate having you here since you've been really closely following the concrete worker strike in the Puget Sound area. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I don't know how well I can explain this mess, but I will try. Well, first, can you start out by sharing what the most breaking news is? Yeah, yesterday they just broke that the county, uh, the King County Council is, is getting involved in this and they are, um, you know, going to study uh, via, uh, you know, a request from to the executive to create a implementation plan uh, for a county owned or publicly owned uh, concrete co-op. So that that would basically be public competition for these private companies that continue to stall and not not put their uh, workers back to work and get the concrete flowing. To me, it sounds like a pretty um, a pretty big step to take to consider creating a municipal concrete company. How do we get to this point? Yeah, it's been a uh, uh, this uh, today apparently the 125th day of the strike. Um, you know, it's it's there a lot of animosity is built up between uh, the workers, uh, the specifically concrete drivers at these six largest concrete companies in the Seattle metro, and um, you know, and and their employers who um, you know just don't don't see eye 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 to eye on their on their terms. Um, they've been fighting over compensation. They've been fighting over retirement plans and health care. They've been fighting about just about everything, and they just um, they're not budging. So, you know, the, this strike just lingers and lingers and the, both sides have been called, uh, calling each other a lot of names. The Seattle's of course, one of the fastest concrete pouring places around. We have all of these cranes in the area. Stuff is going up. Um, how much of that has stalled? Uh, well, you know, some of these projects have a little bit of flexibility, but there's definitely um, a huge amount of worry about the West Seattle Bridge in particular because that was supposed to open uh, June 30th of this year um, because they chose a repair option. They're just trying to kind of keep this cracked aging bridge. Well, it's it's, it's about 37 years old now. Uh, keep it going for another, whatever, 50 years or whatever. Uh, and, you know, they need this um, high-performing concrete to do the job to anchor these cables that that sort of put some strength back in this kind of decrepit structure uh and that's one that's on everyone's mind and and it's certainly adding a ton of gravity many of the concrete workers themselves live in west seattle because a lot of the plants are in soto or in just across the west seattle bridge so there's there's really a a factor of like you're looking at a lot of these factories and you can see the bridge from there and it's so close and they just need to get that concrete there but uh you need to do it just so to make it happen at this point, the concrete workers have, uh, they've said that they're willing to go back to working at three of the six companies. Is that correct? Yeah, they made that offer uh, maybe a week and a half ago. Uh, and so far, there hasn't 
been a ton of progress. Some of the workers are going back. Apparently, four at Cadman is what the Teamsters Local 174, which represents the concrete drivers, has said. Four, four workers back at this plant. The plant's at about one-third capacity. Um, and, but that hasn't been enough, as far as I know, to get concrete to the bridge. Um, and I think that, um, as well, the other, other big projects that are stalled out um, include link light rail expansions. If they're still in the concrete phase, they they need that concrete from these factories, um, and as well the um, Washington State Convention Center still needs some concrete. It sounds like so. There's a lot of marquee projects. There's also affordable housing projects, uh, the biggest of which is the high rise in First Hill. That'll be the first affordable high rise built in over 50 years. Um, it's a collaboration between I want to say Bellwether and Plymouth, if I'm not mistaken, and that one is also stalled out in. It would have over 300 homes, um, many of them for um, set aside for homeless folks. Um, so there's a lot at stake. Uh, they certainly need concrete to flow. Just there's not agreement about how to get it going. Well, I had the chance to look at some of the press releases that were shared by the union representing the concrete companies, and they showed photographs of trucks that were uh, the trucks that were shipping concrete that were not their trucks trucks that did not have a business logo on them, trucks that had their license plate written on with a Sharpie, I believe. And workers have been um, criticizing this, saying that they're being forced to operate unsafe equipment. How could the companies at this point possibly see this as beneficial to their case? It's interesting that they're calling them ghost trucks and not coming out and just saying scabs and jumping the line across the strike or jumping the strike line but i won't be pejorative against anybody who's trying to look for work these days i think it's their employees though who have come back who are operating these trucks and that's part of what makes it so strange because the companies have their own equipment yeah they these companies uh are quite large i think cabin's one of the larger companies so they have a lot of their own trucks uh and for some reason they're not giving their employees these trucks um i don't know if you know this is their worry that they were planning to sabotage the trucks or something or they are just you know i don't know just just being cautious um initially the companies said they you know the, the workers offered to go to back to work immediately um it was a tuesday i think uh and the companies uh said they needed more time and um you know, so they met on Friday and, they, you know, they said they needed five days to kind of, you, you know, it is it is a complicated thing that you need to make sure the site is ready to receive the concrete. You need to make sure you um, have all the right, you know, right concrete right, prepared to be mixed and everything. But, you know, this is stuff that professionals, as theoretically, it's not going to take them weeks to figure this out. But for some reason, they're stalling um, and they're only putting back these old trucks that the union anyways claims had been mothballed and weren't in service anymore. So that's interesting because I will admit that when I started hearing about the trucks coming in with different license plates or no names, it immediately hit my head as they're, they're scabs. It's, but what you're saying is that it is the drivers who have come back are being given the worst trucks and this is an unsafe condition kind of proven the point that the truck drivers are making about some of these negotiations. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and the union has had a lot of different, um, you know, sort of complaints. So that may have gotten lost in the shelf a little bit, but part of their complaint and why they're demanding, 
you know, a better contract, including more compensation, but also some, some more workplace safety, um, you know, stipulations is because they say that co- companies like Cadman and, and Gary Mer- Merlino in particular, it seems like have earned their ire for, you know, not running safe workplaces. Um, and in this is a case, they're giving them these old trucks that they, you know, they have new trucks that are in good shape, but the, the drivers who, you know, part of the, what the asset is, is, you know, running a concrete mixing truck is not an easy thing. They're really big and unwieldy. They have to be mixing everything just right as they're moving towards the construction site. Some sites require very specialized concrete, including the West Seattle Bridge. So, you know, they have to mix it just right, not let the concrete, you know, overset. Uh, and then they, when they get to the site, you know, they, they're often arriving at odd hours early in the morning. And they have to get everything, you know, uh, set before, you know, the concrete's useless. Um, and they can really, you know, waste a big investment if that's it not delivered right. With their most recent press release, the union also sent out a report documenting some of the safety complaints that have been made by workers. And in the report, they used, uh, they showed some photographs that uh, they allege um, demonstrate that the workers are being forced to use unsafe equipment and trucks that are in bad repair. One of their big concerns that relates to this that goes beyond just worker safety is the fact that these trucks often are navigating through residential areas. So if there were to be an accident, if there were to have, you know, something that could go wrong that could compromise safety, it could directly impact people where they live. For sure. Yeah. And it's just, you know, they have better equipment, so it's a bit of a head scratcher why they're not using it. So one more time, um, what are the resolutions that are getting thrown around? We have we can we can look towards the um, contractors paying more. We can look towards the uh, employees saying, "Okay, I guess we don't actually need more money and safety." And what's the other big one? Yeah, so this is the new the new solution on the table is this municipal concrete company um it could potentially be county run since it's it's initiating from the county council and county executive Dow constantine who announced it yesterday uh we're, we're talking on uh wednesday so uh you know this is tuesday uh and that he announced it and, and you know it's sort of a novel solution for the county to uh get in the business of making concrete it's never uh really been in that business before um, but it would sort of be the, you know, kind of uh, find a, find a way out of this impasse. Um, it, and, you know, <laughs> not everyone seems totally enthusiastic about it on the council, but everyone voted for it. So they at least want this feasibility study on the table. It's not clear yet if they're, you know, serious about following through on it. Some seem hesitant, like uh, council member uh, Rod Dembowski. Um, but you know, uh, they at least want to pressure the co- companies to be like, hey, if you keep messing around, we're, we're going to just take over. I think it really belies the significance of this strike and how much it's impacted substantial infrastructure projects throughout the entire region. And looking forward to the Sound Transit light rail, link light rail expansion, Concrete is going to only become more important in the future. We're not in any way slowing down in terms of our major construction projects. Having a municipal concrete company that can perhaps, um, you know, step in and prevent these kinds of strikes from happening in the future could prove to be a really great asset. Yeah, and, and you know, 
we certainly need the concrete and um on top of that the the way when it's completely almost completely stopped like it is now it, it starts bleeding into the all the other trades um as i've written about um and you know some of them are pretty obvious like the concrete finishers can't finish concrete when there's no concrete you know iron workers often they're working with rebar there's no concrete the iron work dries up but it starts bleeding into everyone when when these skyscrapers can't keep climbing with new decks being laid to, to support the next level of uh, work so it, it has the potential to dry up work in the entire construction industry which is uh if i'm remembering the number correctly a 26 billion dollar industry in this region um so you know there are thousands and thousands of jobs at stake um, and some are more insulated than others but eventually if the strike keeps going a lot of these projects just can't happen so it's 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 you know eventually there's going to come to a head all righty so I've been holding it in for the entire first half of this discussion. I'm just going to say that holding labor over a barrel is bad form. All of this discussion has full of unreinforced assertions, and all of these ideas are out there floating like a cement boat. You just couldn't help yourself, Ray, could you? I got it. I let all of the news part pass, and now um, there will be more puns, but I'll get to them as they come up. Um, Some slow settling puns you have there. Oh, my goodness. I'm waiting for them to aggregate. So the kicker about having a publicly owned concrete company is, uh, oh my gosh, we don't do publicly owned stuff really well normally. What in the heck makes us think that we're going to do a concrete company very well? We can't get a publicly owned bank off the ground in Washington. Why in the world do we, uh, where, where does the idea of a concrete company actually go? Yeah, that is a big question. Uh, you know, and, and I think it's hard to get publicly thing publicly funded or, or organized things launched. Uh, but I think, you know, part of the American problem is that we just uh, we insist that they don't work when things clearly do sometimes. Um, no one's saying to get rid of Social Security in a serious way. Uh, you know, so there, there are programs that work, but we're definitely in the era of the public public private partnership. Um, although I don't know, maybe is it a public private partnership if we just offer to buy one of these companies that's refusing to, to, you know, pour concrete and just pour the concrete. That's why they're starting out small with the feasibility study. This will give them a sense of if it's actually something that is attainable as a goal or even desirable. And maybe it is. And that could be exciting because it could perhaps create a blueprint for other industries to follow if we find ourselves in this kind of pickle again in the future. Maybe this will actually lead the way to that publicly owned bank that so many people have desired for such a long time in Washington state. It's interesting to think of the shape of the pickle we're in, for God's sake. I'm so sorry. But <laughs> it, it, it's because the, the, the shape of the pickle is that we, I guess I would say the shape of the pickle barrel, because pickles are fairly consistently shaped, the shape of the pickle barrel that we're actually what in. Are you why are you talking about pickles now? Because I'm hungry. Because we need, yes, maybe we need publicly owned pickles. Um, 
what we're... Is it because you're Polish? Oh, yes. Absolutely. I can say that because I'm also Polish. <laughs> 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 My grandparents used to make pickles and sell them at a market. No way. Yes. Excellent. Okay, that's a total we're, aside. We'll... We're, we're going to nationalize the pickle industry. This will be fun. Big bunny maker. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the shape of the issue that we're looking at is there's... Um, there's companies that are doing the work, but they're not paying their staff enough or the staff, the way the staff is being paid is not keeping up with the inflated costs of construction and the amount of money that these companies are getting is not passing through to these individuals. And so the union has said, it's time for us to renegotiate this. Is that something that can actually be overcome by a public organization? I, th I think it probably would give um, workers a bit more of a, of a bargaining partner. But I guess you could argue that, uh, you know, they could be stingy as well. But, you know, it, it would, would be probably being approved by, say, the county council or something like that. Uh, or maybe they'd set up a you know neutral arbiter. Arbiter. This is how serious you know how far along we think this thing will actually get. But um, you know, I, I it sounded like uh, Teamsters One Seven Four was ready to take anyone other than the people they're negotiating with now, who they've completely lost their patience with. So for who the 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 Teamsters are negotiating with, half the folks they're willing to go back and work for, half of the folks they're at saying no, we're at a complete impasse. Correct. Yeah, and that way the, the it's a partial end of the strike. So um, they, they get to continue to argue to argue for that long-term contract they want um, while, you know, making sure some of these projects that were becoming really politically damaging to have paused, um, the, the light rail, the West Seattle Bridge, really sticking out among those, um, get those going again so that, you know, the whole region doesn't come to a standstill. And they've had a lot of support from the other building trades who picketed with them who've brought them food, who've, you know, just been supportive of them. But that solidarity probably doesn't last forever because some of those folks are starting to lose work as well. Um, so it's sort of a compromise that, that keeps that apparatus going. Um, there also have been not strikes so long that they're having to switch to COBRA to get temporary health insurance. So, um, you know, the strike gets more painful for the workers the longer it goes along and it starts spilling over more. Um, so it's sort of a compromise to... Um, alleviate some of those things while still fighting for that long-term contract they want because when they go back they're on the old contract no raise have they been explicit about what it would take to end the strike at this point i think they want more money and you know the the that seems to be one of the core sticking points um there also is some some disagreement about what the um, retirement and health plan will look like um, but but they really do want just the base compensation to be higher too, and they've pointed to the skyrocketing cost of housing and just inflated um, living costs in general in this region as we are living in a time of high inflation now. Um, they they want that that bump in pay to be able to to live in the city that they're building, and they emphasize that point over and over again. It's kind of hard to argue with that point. Um, you know these these new um, high rises and large buildings wouldn't be going up without them. And they don't feel like they have to live on the edge of the region and, and you know, truck in every day. Um, so, you know, that that's certainly a, a question that 
looms bigger than their particular industry. It's part of our whole regional identity. Like, how do we become a region that is, um, you know, egalitarian that, you know, we can feel like we can be working class and still live in a city rather than, um, you know, halfway to Yakima or something, you know? I'm struck by the idea that there is a, the, the political component to this uh, is not so much the impact on the workers all the time. It's what very visible bridges are getting delayed. Uh, and I can't help but think that if we hadn't screwed up so many different ways on the West Seattle Bridge, we the 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 Teamsters wouldn't be, you know, being uh, being hung out to dry in certain ways and forced to come back as quickly. They could actually negotiate without the 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 doomsday clock of oh my gosh, is the West Seattle Bridge ever going to reopen? ticking away above them. I mean, it cuts both ways, right? Like, I think they intended to use that as leverage. Uh, but I think that their um, the bosses, the company bosses knew that as well. And they both pointed fingers at each other saying, no, you're the one delaying this. And, um, you know, no, you're the one that are um, not negotiating in good faith as they're obligated to do. Um, so, you know, it's sort of the you hit your hit your wagon to this because it's such a cataclysmic event, but it, it is also something that is, um, you know, dangerous, you know, and, and could cut the other way. This strike has brought to our attention the concrete industry, which many of us don't spend much time thinking about. It's something we take for granted. However, it has a really big impact on our lives in so many ways. And one of those relates to carbon emissions. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the number one single point source of concrete in our county is Ashgrove Cement Factory in uh, Soto, right in the edge of West Seattle. Um, and that's where a lot of these companies are getting their cement and they mix it with the concrete. Uh, and that's how we have buildings. And, you know, even using really deep green techniques, uh, often you're still starting from the concrete base that you need. Um, that's why you know that your building is earthquake safe and won't settle. Uh, and, you know, it makes a big difference what goes on top of that because you can just keep adding concrete up on top of that and that that's going to be a higher impact building um but, but you know there there may be one way that the this stranglehold will be lessened in the future is, is we'll be using less concrete in buildings um and that would be good for the environment um but you know we'll have to figure out how how if that can be to zero or if that just ultimately you're still laying that foundation and then maybe you put mass timber or stick timber uh or you know, some other uh, technology on top of it uh, that is going to be deep green, high performing, you know, energy efficient. Um, but, you know, I think the region's going to need concrete for the foreseeable future. I call it your foundation pun. I was going to do the uh, holding back carbon emissions dam, but that's where we are. That one wasn't even intentional, Ray. That's how, <laughs> that's how good I am. It would be fun that if we have a municipal or countywide concrete company, we had a say in the mix of concrete that's actually going out the door, how it's made, how much impact we want it to have, things along those lines. That's true. The environmental benefits and social benefits of that could be really substantial. Could we do an EIS for not putting giant smelting plants right next to neighborhoods of color next time? 
Oh, and for people who are not super wonks, Ray, what is an EIS again? <laughs> That's the government's request for a comment in case they make a decision and it is going to dump huge amounts of pollution into one neighborhood. The environmental impact statement uh, makes the government take a pause, look around, and ask the question, is this going to screw everything up? If they decide to go ahead with it anyway, they have the paperwork to uh, yell at them about it. And, you know, I think the interesting thing about hearing about some of the timelines, some of these projects are not delayed yet. Uh, and you'll hear uh, the reason why is because they'll say, oh, well, we're still digging our giant garage that's going to go underneath our building right now. So we're not going to need a shipment of concrete until this summer. Uh, and it's just a reminder that, you know, those giant underground parking structures um, a, they are going to absorb a ton of concrete when they do get build, which adds to their carbon footprint. But uh, on top of that, you know, they also uh, represent a ton of emissions via the vehicles that they're uh, inducing to take trips to their field buildings. Free parking made out of carbon spewing concrete, moving cars spewing carbon spewing cars to free park. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, nothing about cars is eco-friendly. Oh, but if we plug them in, we can still have a horrifyingly uneco-friendly situation. So. It's better than nothing. Well, that's about the amount of time we have for today. Uh, before we go, a couple letters and corrections from earlier episodes. Uh, Grant Peltier from East Ballard, West Woodland wrote in and said, I really appreciated the discussion on my neighborhood. A few crucial items are needed to make this area reach its potential. If Gilman Playground is the heart of the neighborhood, then 14th Avenue is going to be the main street with the breweries. The pedestrian experience on 14th is quite miserable for how many people are walking around the breweries. Crosswalks across 14th and improving sight lines so drivers can see pedestrians is crucial. While I want the industrial heart of this area to remain, allowing a few more cafes, restaurants, or housing above industrial uses is crucial to making it feel like a complete neighborhood. As a frequent bike commuter, improving access to the Burke Gilman Trail along 8th and 14th will also be crucial as crossing Leary via a bike is bumpy, scary endeavor that I'm forced to make often. Lastly, if it's going to become its own space, a library or post office or other community space will be needed so more people can complete trips without getting in their car. Thanks, Grant, for writing one in. If you have anything you want to comment about, please send us an email at podcast at theurbanist.org. Next, we wanted to let you know about our upcoming April meetup in which we will be joined by guest Mark Domes, who is CEO of the King County Regional Homeless Authority. This event will take place on April 12th and more details will be found on our website. We do want to take a moment to thank the folks who have donated to the Urbanist Spring Subscriber Drive. Thank you for making this and all the Urbanist research and reporting possible. If you haven't had a chance to subscribe, there is still time. Just visit the website at theurbanist.org. Also, thank you for joining us today, Doug Trom, Executive Director of the Urbanist. Doug! Yay! Oh, thanks, thanks guys. Here, well, that's it for this week's podcast. I'm Natalie Argarius. And I'm Ray DeBicke. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll talk again soon.